Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a good story. That's what this series is all about, success stories. Every week I'll introduce you to women who are doing great things with their lives, despite every obstacle in their path. I've interviewed over 600 women throughout my career as a broadcaster, and they've taught me so many powerful life lessons. Lessons about courage, purpose, responsibility, perseverance, resiliency, love, and joy. Successful women think differently. Success is so much more than the outcome. It's about the journey. It's the story of how you got there. In the spotlight, Astrid Hendren. At only 32, with two small children to take care of and a thriving career, Astrid suffered a massive stroke that almost killed her. What happened next will inspire you. This is Astrid's success story. Thank you so much for being here today, my friend. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm thinking that there are times when your stroke seems like yesterday, and then there are times when it seems like a lifetime ago. Do you mind if I ask you to take us back to that day so we can frame your story? Sure. I was driving down the street with my three-year-old daughter at the time, and I will never forget her question when the brain bleed actually occurred. She asked me, Mom, can butterflies smell? And it's a question that's engraved in my memory because at that moment, I was just, I felt this incredible pain in the back of my head and had no idea what was going on and just said, oh, gosh, Audrey, I, I can't talk right now. I'm, I'm really having a lot of pain. We drove for the next mile in silence to my house and my parents from the Netherlands were visiting. And as I walked in the door, I said, I really don't feel very good and I need to sit down. I called the doctor at that time explained that I needed an appointment that day. They told me they had no appointment, and if the headache was that bad, I should go to the emergency room. And they really probably saved my life by pushing me to go to the ER. So I told my dad, please, dad, take me to the emergency room. I tried to sit for a while, and, you know, I took an Advil, which apparently is really not a great thing to take when you have that bad a headache because it's a blood thinner. But when I got to the hospital, I told my dad to just go home and pick me up later after they probably would do some tests. As I was sitting in the emergency room, things just really started to go downhill and the pain was just so, so, so intense. And people didn't seem to be really in tune with that. So they asked me to still fill out paperwork. But this is, of course, now 20 years ago. It was a, a very different scene in the hospital arriving with the worst headache of your life. Back then, that was not recognized yet as one of the main symptoms of having a brain bleed, which is the stroke I had, a hemorrhagic stroke. It took a while before I got the attention I needed, but I was rolled into a scanner and they found out I had had a massive brain bleed. And when this doctor came to my bedside. I remember his accent and everything. He said, I have really bad news for you. You had a massive brain bleed and you will have to have emergency brain surgery within the next few hours. What happened in your mind after that? Or were you in so much pain you couldn't even think about how dire your situation was? Well, when that doctor leaned over me, I remember very clear that I said right away, well, shouldn't I be transferred to another hospital? Because I was in a very small suburban hospital and I, we're in Boston, which where all the great places are. 
that was my response. It was not one of like, oh my God, what are you telling me? Uh, it was directly into the mode of, okay, what are we going to do to get it fixed? He said, okay, your husband is coming, you know, in the next couple hours and we'll make that decision then. Some stuff transpired then where I think in the background they didn't think they could help me because of where the aneurysm was located. And they had seen something on the scanner, but basically uh, didn't think I could be helped. So basically this was a stroke that could have, should have, probably would have killed you. Absolutely. Yeah, actually this kind of hemorrhagic stroke, my stroke, my aneurysm, which is kind of like a bulge in a garden hose, uh, was located inside a malformation at the tip of my brainstem. So right in the back of my head, head, two inches deep in the brain, was actually a malformation that was probably born with. And because I did suffer from high blood pressure, over the years, the artery uh, wall had weakened. And so now this rupture had taken place. And normally people indeed pass away when it happens. So I'm sure that our listeners are detecting a <laughs> bit of an accent from you. You came to this country at only 19 from the Netherlands. Let's step back just a little bit. Tell us that story. Yeah, so I came from the Netherlands and I had finished my high school and my older brother was a fighter pilot in the Air Force and stationed in Texas. I did not speak any English at the time. So my big path after high school was which co we, we have a different high school system in Holland where you're kind of streamlined at a much younger age. The path I was supposed to take was either go to law school or to medical school. I wasn't really up for that yet. And because I didn't speak any English, I figured it would be a good idea to just take kind of a year off. So I went, came to the United States and wanted to learn the language and lived with a family in Cambridge. And it was a wonderful experience. And of course, I fell in love and then stayed. You also, though, are an entrepreneur at heart. And you created a couple of businesses pre-internet that were really huge success stories. So I did not know that I was an entrepreneur. That kind of just evolved. I was always a go-getter in high school and did a lot of organizing events and such. I was actually very involved with the student body. But when I came to the States, I was really intended to go back to Holland and go back to college and school. But then America is amazing. You really can just get up the next day and say, what do I want to do today? I'm a windsurfer. So that's the start of that first entrepreneurial story. Because when I came to the States, there was a windsurf shop in Cambridge called Europa Windsurf, and they needed some part-time help. Within weeks, I was selling the most windsurfers in that shop. So they Despite asked, the fact that you didn't speak English well. You well, just, you learn it fast when you go to another country. It's really the submersion that I think teaches, because I was terrible at language in high school. But when I came to the States and started working in the windsurf shop, they offered for us to go to, of all places, Washington, D.C., to open a windsurf shop. So that's where it all started. And then a few years after we had done this windsurf shop thing, I was listening to All Things Considered and decided All Things Dutch. And I needed to just start importing food and products from the Netherlands because everybody I would meet in America that came from Indonesia or from Holland or from Germany, they wanted their food and their books and their, you know, funny things. Way back then, when there was no catalog uh, really out there, I put a catalog together, put on all my different hats for FDA regulations and importing, and I went to Holland and I got the exclusive distributorship for two of the main chains in the Netherlands, and I was like 24. But again, for $1, I started this business, and the only place you could ever do that is the United States. It's awesome. 
You made a deal with God, you told me, mm. when you went through your stroke. Tell me about that. I guess this is pretty common for people who have a near-death experience, that there's this, this bargaining that goes on. I remember very well they didn't have a bed for me in that first emergency room. And I was sitting in the hallway or lying down on the bed in the hallway. And it was now probably I arrived on a Tuesday morning and, you know, at like 1130 it happened. And it's amazing how these times are really engraved because I haven't talked about this in probably 20 years. Uh, Sitting in the hallway, people kind of coming by and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I get to live through this, it will be a miracle. That's clear. And I have a one and a three year old. So if if they have to be 18 and 20, how many years do I need to live so I can be there for them to simply manage on their own? That was really the addition I did. Like, okay, if they need to be 18 and 20, they'll be going to college and off in college. They can help each other. And I need to be 50. So I bargained with God, literally. And I'm not somebody who's uh, very religious or not at that time, at least. And you made it. And I made it. You never loved 50 so much in your whole life. Mm-hmm. It was a real <laughs> milestone. Yep. With gray hairs and all. Yep. Tell us about your recovery and what you learned about yourself through this experience. That brings me back to a really difficult chapter because it was very lonely. You know, I, I was an immigrant, so I didn't have family close by. I was also self-employed. I was an entrepreneur at that point. I had moved on to another business, but I didn't have disability insurance or anything. We also lived in a new community where I didn't know anybody. When you are a foreigner, when you are an immigrant, to fit in, to step out, and to ask other people for help didn't come natural to me, especially because I lived in a different country. And I was not in a happy marriage, so I did not have the support I needed. And I think also the medical caregivers are still... Kind of you, you, you move through their life and your, your life is saved and now you're back home. And I looked great, you know, I, I looked great. I had 76 stitches in my head. But other than that, I, I was walking and I was pretty much talking. So that was a really difficult chapter. Do you feel after you've had a stroke, like you're almost like a, a vase, you know, you're, you're, you're fragile and you don't want to drop it or break it or... You know where I'm going with that? Yes, I do. And and you hit on something very important because a lot of people will say to you, they will simply make the comment, uh, you must feel like you have a new lease on life or you must be so grateful. And it's almost, I know now that many survivors don't actually feel that way. You will get to that and, and there are times you feel grateful, but there's also a lot of just fear and anxiety. And you're right, this feeling of, depending on the trauma, I'm sure. But for me, I had had a massive brain bleed that just came out of nowhere. No, I was completely healthy. So for that to happen, and I can imagine many other traumas that are like that, where people walk away with PTSD is what I now understand it is, is post-traumatic stress. And you're never the same. You're very fragile. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. What do you do when your home computer experiences some kind of a breakdown? Maybe you're working from home, you're on a deadline, you're freaking out, right? Not good. Hey, I've been there before, but not anymore. Here's what I do. I call Tech Help 
Boston, 781-484-1265. They are the best. They'll come to your home or help you remotely. Here's the number, 781-484-1265. Tell them Candy O sent you. Thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O. Terry. In the spotlight, Astrid Hendren, a woman whose near-death experience at only 32 shaped her life and caused her to found an exciting new nonprofit called Cause Fund. What did you learn from that experience? I guess self-reliance was one. I, I think I had always been a very independent person. This added a whole new challenge because I had to really focus on filtering out a lot of pain having two children that needed me. And I never thought I was going to die, I should add that. I, I really, that would never was a question for me. So when the doctor said, uh, you know, this is a really bad case, the worst case scenario is I'm not going to help you and you get to go home for about a week. And I told him literally, well, you do your job and I'll do mine. And it was very clear to me that this is where I am now and that's where I need to go. But living after that, I think you have to really... Just put one foot in front of another, you know, and you have to just make it happen. Near-death experiences have a way of redefining our lives. Was that true for you? Did you have a whole new set of priorities after this? So in some ways I did. People talk about that a lot as well. And now it's a more interesting conversation to have because what I learned from that near-death experience, I think, was very different from what usually people talk about. For me, it was not this, oh, this afterlife type of experience, but it was really that, oh, it was just so peaceful and so beautiful. And I was no longer afraid of death myself. And therefore, I could also be comforting to many other people that have come across my path since. And even in talking to my children or my family about uh, death itself or that moment close to it, for me, it was a revelation because I was in number, if you have zero to 10, I was in number 15 pain. And yet I'm very clear and have very clear memories about those moments being having no pain, just being absolutely blissful and beautiful and so peaceful. And that gave me a real sense of calm about that part of my life. So I could now focus on, okay, what happens when I die is okay, or when I'm dying is okay. I need to now figure out how am I going to live and live with the fear and anxiety that I'm facing. So for the past 10 years, you have been working for the American Heart Association where you were educating children within a school environment or in a summer camp environment about heart disease and stroke. That must have been so rewarding for you. Tell me about your work for the American Heart Association. It was. And, you know, we talk often about how life comes around because it was a very interesting way how I found a job. I was at a Christmas party and somebody was telling me about the Healthy Alliance, the Generation for Healthy Alliance, which Bill Clinton at the time was involved in. And I said, oh, my goodness, children and heart health. I want to be involved. How do I work for an organization like that? And within a, a week, I had a job there, and I had no idea at the time that the American Heart and Stroke Association were a combined organization. It became my mission, obviously. It was wonderful. To be involved in a cause that so personally had affected me was very healing because there was enough distance. Working with schools gave me enough distance that I didn't really see many stroke survivors, which I have to say, and actually would be one of my advices to people because... For now, I get a little 
scared. If I see, uh, I, I get a lot of emotion, emotions when I see people that are stroke survivors or heart disease survivors because it hits home so close. I'm much better with people that have other issues. You Makes also, along, along the way, you wrote a book, which is fantastic, and I highly recommend it for anybody who's listening. It's called Surviving Lasts a Lifetime. What is the message of your book? It is uh, that surviving is all around us. I mean, the two lines go together, but really that when you're hit with a trauma, I think the most important thing you can do for yourself is to look up and not look down, because when you look up, you will realize that other people are going through their stuff. And inevitably, when you are with someone who has been through their own story, and you can now pull them along and comfort them without having to disclose what you went through, it just is so healing for both parties. That's been the meaning for me, really, and the purpose. Where is the book available? Well, of course, that's on Amazon. You are embarking on a whole new chapter in your life. You've created a 501c3 charity, which is called Cause Fund. So tell us all what it's about. Well, it's a unique platform. It's an educational program, which gives the opportunity to each participant to donate and raise awareness for a specific health charity they choose. So it empowers especially students because we're bringing it into the schools and it empowers students to help exactly that message I was telling earlier. If they've been through something, they can be empowered to do something with their experience. So because of what they've been through, they can help others. There's also a piece that is actually very important to education right now uh, across the country, which is called SEL, which stands for Social Emotional Learning. It's important for our children at a very early age to become connected and to learn about things that are emotional. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up because the social-emotional component is really uh, the essence of the whole program. It's the foundation of it. And the way I translate it is we're bringing compassion and care to the students so they can learn how to do something with their experience and not feel like a victim. You know, a lot of kids are faced with a lot of difficult things these days. And when trauma happens in a family, the children are affected, but there's not a real place for them to go. And Cause Fund offers them the opportunity in the curriculum to be part of a, of a solution. And there's also a signature day, which I love. It's called Cause Day. And it sounds really interesting. Tell us how that works. Every school can actually do what they want to do. We help them. We hold their hand. We build it with them. Cause day can be one day in a year or it can be a whole month. We have the East Bridgewater District who is going to celebrate Cause Day for the entire month of March, where we have a middle school in Reading that will celebrate it the day before February vacation. So every school chooses their own day or time frame, and it just is a celebration where kids can choose to wear the color of their cause. They may raise money for the char specific charity they want. And it includes all of the health causes. So I'm talking ALS, Alzheimer's, autism, homelessness, substance abuse. This is so important. I was at a gathering last night where substance abuse was discussed and Charlie Baker was the speaker. And he was pointing out that so often when families are, are dealing with a child with substance abuse, they're kind of exiled because people don't really know how to talk to a family about that. If your child has cancer, it's very different. Everybody comes with meals and help. But uh, substance abuse is kind of like this, you know, very difficult subject. 
And there are other subjects. And I think our program really, in a very subtle way, brings this into the household and empowers people to do something. You know, I'm imagining uh, school teachers really embracing this and having kids do book reports on what is your favorite cause? Why is that your favorite cause? Do you have a personal story around that? And it's all like you said, social emotional learning, S-E-L, so important to our schools these days. What's your philosophy, Astrid, about how or why people become attached to a particular cause? I think that's a really important question because I think there are two ways to look at that. Most of the time, people are passionate about a cause because it affects them personally or their family or a friend, right, who's dear to them. But all too often today, I think both in schools as well as at work, It is actually somebody from the top down that decides which cause everybody now has to rally around. And I know that. I worked for HeartWalk, for the American Heart Association, wonderful concept. And, you know, you have the major hospitals who then have to rally teams to come to this event. I feel it would be really great if people had that choice within one program. And that is what Cause Day does. How can our listeners find out more about Cause Day and Cause Fund? Well, we have a wonderful website, causefund.org, and we would love for people to go look at it and give us their feedback. And most of all, sign up. We have a corporate Cause Day as well as a program for schools. I wish I had a body cam on me these days because Every school I go into and I sit down with the administrators or with parents, they are so excited they're jumping off their seat. It has really been overwhelmingly positive, and I'm just humbled because it's really been an idea that's rolling out. That was going to be my question. I'm, I'm looking at the smile on your face. How does it feel to know that you've created something that's resonating with so many people? It's so powerful, Candy. You can hear me smile, right? Because I knew it was a fun idea and a good idea. I could feel it. But you have to be able to explain it to somebody. But to have it resonate the way it is and the the feedback I'm getting, it just feels everybody hears the big line. Everybody says, why hasn't this been done before? which I think is the biggest compliment. There have been so many lessons for you along the way. What has been the most powerful one for you so far? Very important one. Don't take yourself too serious. I think that's key in life. I think a lot of people tend to think a lot of themselves. We're all really the same, and we're all just going through stuff in life, and we don't know what tomorrow brings. I'm just trying to do my best every day to be a kind person, and I hope everybody else will do the same thing. I'm a really big believer that success is not about the outcome. It's not about you. So much of the time, it's about the journey. It's about the climb. And along the way, we all encounter obstacles. How do you get around an obstacle? People like to say it's grid. I think it's to believe that hindsight will always tell us the story. So if we put one foot in front of another, we're going to have a chance to look back and understand why we were there in the first place. You are so energetic. You're full of life. You've smiled through this entire interview. But I know you, and I know that right now you're in pain. And you have been since your brain bleed, since the day you almost lost your life. How do you personally get through chronic pain? Chronic pain is very disabling, I'm not going to lie. It's uh, something that really... It's tough to deal with, and a lot of people like to take medication or ask you, why don't you take medication? It's a, I think it is a mindset. 
if you believe in yourself that you can get past stuff, that you can focus on other, the mind is very powerful. I always tell my kids that too. You really do have influence over your own destiny. And it's not, like you said, it's not about success every step of the way. But if you can pick yourself up and whether it's with pain or a lot of pain or adversity, there are kids in Massachusetts they are homeless. They don't have a home to go to. So there are always things you can be grateful for. And I think pain is just one, you know, tiny obstacle when I think about those things. If you could talk to your 32-year-old self, mm. that scared young mom waiting for her surgery out in that hallway before you even had a bed, before you even had a room, you told that part of the story, waiting there, making a deal with God, give me until I'm 52 years old. What would you say to her? Reach out to others, ask for help. Don't try to do it all on your own. You know, I probably, if I joined a church or, or some community, even being part of a garden club, it turns out you build a network. Feeling disconnected, I think, is the biggest threat to recovery. The fact that I was so lonely, I think, really didn't help me. So if I could talk back to that 32-year-old, it'd be like, Get connected. Meet people like Candy sooner in your life. <laughs> Do you believe that you're a success? Wow, that's a tough question, Candy. Mm. Yes, objectively, I do. My feeling world is a little behind on that. So what would it mean to you if someone said to you, Astrid Hendren, you're on this show, the story behind her success. You're one of the most humble women I've ever known. How does that feel? It feels like a big compliment. It's a big compliment. I, um, I'm somebody that likes to move mountains. So I think to, in order to keep moving mountains, I have to tell myself I'm not quite there yet. Um, I, I don't want to sit down and rest because then the, the pain does show up. So moving and moving and working hard is actually really good medicine. So, so you just keep on moving the goal. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story. Sarah. Thank you for having me. That was really fun. Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. This is a new series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. Connect with Candy anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story? We'd love to hear it.